Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Julie Garlikov is the Chief Commercial Officer at Sherlock Biosciences, and today we're going to talk about voice of customer in product design. Julie, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So first of all, for context, tell us a little bit about Sherlock Bio. What are you trying to achieve there? Absolutely. So at Sherlock Biosciences, we're really focused on global health and bringing diagnostic answers over the counter and beyond. So you really can't truly be healthy if you can't diagnose what's happening to you. And so we're really focused on bringing those diagnostic tests over the counter and beyond because we know that putting those answers into people's own hands empowers them to make the right health decisions for themselves. So we're really all about democratization of diagnostics and empowerment. And so we are leveraging CRISPR So we have the global exclusive rights to CRISPR in diagnostics, and we have several unique synthetic biology chemistries that are going to create these tests that give you access and convenience. So really at the end of the day, Chris, if you imagine the cost and convenience of the antigen test, but with the accuracy and reliability of a central lab or PCR level results, that's what we're doing. Wow. Okay. Can we take a side trip into a little science? Like how is CRISPR used in a diagnostic? Is that a, is there a short answer for that? I'll give the simple answer. So it's a combination. Um, So what we have basically is we're trying to amplify, right? DNA or RNA. And so in that amplification, the CRISPR brings back the sensitivity and helps you like find the right targets so that you're not, um, cause you're gonna amplify more things there than you need to uh, when you do the amplification step. But for lay people, I would say that in general, it's the combination of the chemistries that's allowed, and our, honestly, our unique device platform that we've built that's enabling you to essentially do a lot of the processes that are happening today in the central lab, which is, like heating, you know, raising and lowering temperatures that we can do in our device platform, as well as some of the chemistries that are enabling these tasks, particularly our disposable format tasks. Nice. So it sounds like you have a platform that will support multiple diagnostics tests? Correct. So we've got two device platforms. Uh, We've got a disposable test that will be our first to market as well as a reusable reader that's almost like a little, imagine like a little toaster with a cartridge. And both of those allow you to be outside of a central lab, right? They're very portable. Uh, The disposable allows you to be anytime, anywhere. And those open up a range of applications for infectious disease and disease monitoring. Nice. Okay. So let's talk about um, design and, you know, product design of diagnostics and customer centricity. What does customer centric mean in terms of diagnostics? Because this is sort of a new area in the last handful of years where we're all doing our own testing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think a consumer centric design for me is really all about embodying the methods of design thinking 
which is really making sure that you have a deep understanding and empathy for the user that you're designing for and that you're solving a problem that they really have and that you're doing it in a way that fits into their lifestyle or their needs. And so at Sherlock, the way that we've done this is by conducting a lot of research. So we've talked to a lot of people, um, everything from practitioners to lay users and consumers, asked a lot of questions, doing things like ethnography, qualitative research, quantitative surveys. Um, and we've also done a lot of prototyping of making you know, device prototypes and all different kinds of methods of testing to make sure that people can do the test, that they understand the instructions, that the communication is clear. Every single element that we're designing around our test experience it is designed really with that consumer and user at the center. Yeah, so ethnography, I did an episode on this probably six or seven years ago. For those who don't know, because I don't think it's a common thing it's watching how someone does something, right? I mean, that's a simple way to describe That's it. exactly. And it can be going into their home and understanding what products they have in their home. Or in our case, it's literally um, watching them play and use different products. You can ride with them to a, a grocery store and look at how they go shopping. I mean, it, there's all levels of what you can do within ethnography, but it's going really deep into people's life and lifestyle and usage of things to understand like who they are as people so that when you design, you're designing for them. Yeah, that answered sort of my next question because I was wondering, is it just watching people try, you know, different versions of a product, but you're, you're looking bigger than that and just how people handle day-to-day -day things and thinking about how people move, pick things up, whatever it is, and trying to incorporate the simplest path to your test, right? Exactly. And it's really multifaceted, Chris. So I would say the research we've employed is some of these prototypes and physical research of like how they actually take the test and how they use it in the steps. But then there's also things that are very much like around their attitudes and usage of the category. So one of the things... Um, that I started doing when I got to Sherlock was saying, well, we're looking at going into the sexual wellness space. We better really understand not just, you know, chlamydia and gonorrhea and who's had it and how many people in the population have it, but really like foundational research around people's attitudes and beliefs. So like, for instance, how do people about think about their sex life? How does their sexual wellness, meaning their health and wellness, factor into that? Or do people not even think about that when they consider their sex life, right? And how many people like really seriously use protection out there? What are their attitudes about testing? Um, which groups of people test today? And what are the barriers to them to getting tested? Like in order to design something, you really have to understand all of this sort of larger beliefs, attitudes, and kind of uses of, of how people are thinking about a category um, to me to really design something that's going to meet their needs. That's enlightening. Um, first of all, that whole category just came up on another interview yesterday about testing for STIs, for example. But 
thinking about the category as a larger thing of people's sexual lives, behavior, wellness, and who would use this, who wouldn't use it, what would it take for people who aren't inclined to use it to think differently about it, that's that's a pretty uh, wide-angle lens, shall we say. Well, and I think it's within that wide angle. You, have, you know, you kind of have to start at the top and then winnow your way down. But it's really important to understand that bigger context for people of where, you know, sexual wellness, sexual health fits into their larger sort of views around sexuality and health in general. And so, like, for instance, for STIs in particular, which is where we're focused for our first product, that the user of an STI test is going to be much younger because that's where the problem is happening. That's the group that needs to be screening. And they're, you know, like 18 to 35 years old. And I don't know about you, but having worked on other products for screening and prevention, in general, young people don't always think about prevention. They're young, they're healthy, they kind of think nothing can ever happen to them. So like, who right. who are the young people that actually are currently even worried about this and who are the ones that don't care at all? And like one thing that I um, uncovered in this attitudes and usage study that we did with almost 1,300 people, young people in the US, um, was a group I, I'm calling, it's like a segment of the population I would call frisky riskies. So Frisky Riskies is a group that skews a little more male than female, and they're a group that's engaging in behavior where they have more frequent casual partners, and they're not often using protection. And they know that they're not using protection, and they know that puts them at risk. So what's interesting is that they actually test more than other people because they use testing as a way to mitigate the things they're doing that they know are causing risk for them. Interesting. Wow. Okay. Makes it makes sense, but yeah, it's might not have expected you wouldn't I would not have expected that at all. <laughs> um all right. So is there any other research that we should talk about? But well we besides the ethnography and so on? Well, we've done the attitudes and usage. We've done um and, and another interesting tidbit, right? We found that just under half of the people that we've talked to are using protection on a regular basis, like when they're having sex with, you know, new partners, casual sex, et cetera. So it's definitely, and that's what they're telling us. So you don't know what they're actually doing. Um, that was my next question, but yeah. <laughs> but I think, um, like I said, I think it's been a combination of observation, understanding attitudes. We've done things where you know, where we've really articulated the product and the science in different ways uh, with different language to understand what people understand and don't and what, um, you know, what claims and what kinds of positioning is going to resonate. So more classic sort of product positioning research. But I think the ones that are most interesting are these attitudes that we talked about, um, broader picture, and also some of the hands-on work of really putting devices in people's hands that I think are, are just fascinating kinds of research to observe. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little uh, farther down the line toward approval here. So you're trying to get something approved. There's a lot of other people that get involved. Talk about the regulatory process a little bit and how that impacts development and commercialization. Well, it's super important, as you can imagine. And so we really are prioritizing collaboration with regulators to ensure that we're meeting the highest standards for safety and reliability 
And I think that's critical, but there's other stakeholders as well that need to be involved in that process that we're engaging. So that would include some of the leading STI researchers for this first product, because we need to understand the research and what they're seeing, public health officials, the CDC. Um, and there's just many people that can help us understand how a test like ours is going to fit into public health. What are the implications which populations are most impacted and how are we going to reach those people? So, and of course we're collaborating with the consumer because ultimately we're designing for a consumer. So I think um, that partnership with regulators is critical, but also having all those other perspectives will be as critical as well to our launch. So can I ask you like what level of regulation applies here? Are we talking about an off the shelf class one, and we're getting to the edge of my knowledge, but. I know it's great. Um, so we're looking at an over-the-counter product. So we would be like a regulated device that would be sold over-the-counter. So you still need to go through all of the application with FDA and clinical studies to do that, that would ultimately allow you to be, let's say, sold at a drugstore on the shelf. Right. Yeah. So that came up as well in another episode about um, and what you just mentioned about letting people know, like how, how do people find out that this is available and then presumably, you know, get it in front of them, but also being discreet about it because of walking up to the cash register or a self-serve kiosk and so on. So I think you're talking about once we're in market, like how do you do the yeah. marketing of a product like this so that um, people are aware, but also they have privacy? I think, is that where you're going? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's a difficult dance, right? Uh, because people want both. I do think from our research, consumers are telling us they want to buy this online, you know, for that privacy, right? They want something that comes in discrete packaging. They don't want it clearly shouting on the outside of their Amazon box or shipping box what the product is. Um, but there's others who say that, they, you know, they're fine buying it anywhere, just like the way you buy a pregnancy test or something like that. Right. Is online purchase a possibility for things that need that kind of regulatory approval? Yes. So we're looking at um, so over the counter, it would be very similar once you have an approval to the way you'd buy, you know, um, aspirin or Tylenol or cough medicine. So as long as we followed all the regulations and have that approval, we could then be sold, you know, e-commerce on our own website, on other shops. Um, we could be delivered through a DoorDash. We could be on a drugstore shelf, grocery store shelf, et cetera. Yeah. It also just occurred to me that then getting it in front of people, depending on how online marketing changes, you know, targeting age groups and Facebook likes. Exactly. Whatever. And how do you make it hip and cool to talk about something that's around sexual health, right? How do you get people to care and be concerned about their sexual health? And who are they going to listen to for advice? Because it's not always their doctor, right? It might be an influencer. Right. Yep. Cool. Um, all right. What other barriers do we need to overcome? Um, talk about, and then talk about how COVID antigen tests have really shaped the market for everyone now who's developing over-the-counter tests. Well, 
I think that COVID-19 pandemic really showed the world the appetite that consumers have to get fast, reliable health information from the privacy and safety of their home. I, I think you would agree with that. Um, the benefits were just enormous for us, right, around convenience and speed so that you could get information to seek treatment during the pandemic really quickly if you were infected or to make the right decisions for you and your family about what you wanted to do. And now when you think about how familiar we all are with the process of home testing, like the data that we've collected says almost every person in America actually used a home test at some point in the past few years, which is mind boggling when you think about how many people are now able to do things like use a swab and drop yeah. liquid into a well and read a lateral flow strip. I mean, none of those things were things that any of us had any knowledge of. They were completely foreign to consumers, right? Those might have happened in a doctor's office, but you didn't do that in your kitchen. And I did it, you know, countless times, and I know everybody else did. And we've looked at the data and seen um, how many people purchased and were given and used those tests, and it's mind-boggling the amount of tests that were distributed and used, which means there's this level of education that like we're just in a different place than where we were in the world before. And so the concept of home testing is not foreign anymore, right? So now it's much easier for people to adopt a new diagnostic test than it was before the pandemic. Yeah. I don't even know, I don't know what the output of your test looked like, but just to think that, you know, 10 years ago, aside from maybe a pregnancy test, you would have never thought that um, you don't even need to know how the test works. You just step one, two, three, does this, you know, stripe match the other stripe? It, that's exactly it. And still, when you look at what's actually approved for home use um, over the counter, the only tests that are available are those pregnancy tests that have been around for a very long time. There's a drug screening test, you know, to look at drugs, like a marijuana test you could do at home. And there's an HIV antibody test. But the COVID tests are under an emergency use authorization. They're in the process of gaining actual regulatory, you know, approvals right now. But that's it. That's all we have that you can yeah. do at home. And everything else requires you to go to the lab or mail a sample to a lab, which is really time consuming and I think very inconvenient for people. Right. It's kind of still mind boggling that the COVID tests are, you know, was still under emergency use. I know. <laughs> Though that we've done millions and millions of tests. And what I, my hope is that the potential now for people to understand the desire consumers have and their ability to actually properly take tests at home is in a very different space when the FDA thinks about it, the physician community thinks about it than it was before the pandemic. And so I'm hoping that we've crossed over some of those barriers um, when you just really look at how many people have used those tests and successfully used those tests. And so I, I do think kind of that's one barrier. And then the other barrier is just the technical challenges of what we're trying to do, which is, you know, essentially amplifying DNA or RNA to create a molecular test without all the lab equipment, the heat, all the things that we've needed to do that before. And I'm 
confident that we can do that at Sherlock with our unique chemistries and our very novel device platform. But I'm also very confident that the consumer is now ready for our test because of what we went through with the pandemic. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Okay, so what are the implications as we go forward for having more tests presumably developed for home use? What are the implications for access, for interactions, like how, what the involvement of your physician will be, et cetera? I think it's a really good question. And I think of that from there's multiple, multiple factors for the implications because right now what we're all about at Sherlock is democratizing diagnostics and giving, you know, empowering people, giving them control and access to information and to answers. And when you think about what that means, that if you have an accurate, affordable, accessible test, using STI as an example or anything else, it really can transform, I think, what's going on with wellness in our country, because now you have the ability to slow or stop the spread of STIs in a way that you haven't before. And they've been rising rapidly. Like gonorrhea is up 25% in cases in the past five years. Chlamydia is up 37% in the last decade. And it's, I mean, these are not great things, right, to have rampant spread. Um, and part of the reason for that is that for women in particular, these illnesses are asymptomatic. So they might not even realize they have them. And if you don't realize you have something, there are some longer term impacts to your fertility and other things that can happen from carrying these illnesses and not being aware that you have them. So if you are able to like test more easily and readily, you're going to catch more illness, right? You're going to be able to get to treatment and you're going to stop spread. Yeah. Now that's definitely a big deal. It's also, I mean, I just like talking about these sorts of innovations as much or more so than I will say, you know, new therapies or discoveries <laughs> only because I feel like a lot of effort goes to tackling the other end of the problem on the treatment side and not as much on the diagnostic and prevention. I realize, you know, if there's diagnostic is positive, then there is a treatment, but um, getting, you know, just making people aware and thinking about prevention and wellness can have an impact on its own because they're paying attention, right? I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think the more we can spend time on the preventative side and what I will call just generally peace of mind, I think that's very important to people's health is that if they can figure out how to get an answer to a very simple thing that they're worried about without having to worry about driving somewhere that might be far from their home, taking off work, um, something that's very affordable, that's easy to do. It just drives up access to answers, if you will, for your health. And I'm all about empowerment. And, you know, if you want to know what's going on with yourself, making it as easy as possible for people to have that information. Nice. Julie Garlicoff, this has been a treat talking to you today. I think this is really interesting. I'm excited about what you're doing. And thank you for sharing your experience with us. Thanks, Chris, very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Hey, if you're still listening, that tells me you enjoyed the podcast. But don't tell me, tell your friends, and I'll be back soon with another episode. Okay, you can tell me too. Send an email, chris at 
lifesciencemarketingradio.com. Bye-bye.